three Sundays left in this series that we have been calling Hope in Exile. And we've been looking at the life of Daniel and his friends. And what we have, have found, which has just been astounding, is that not only have Daniel and his friends survived the exile, but in fact we find them thriving spiritually in it. And so we've been asking, what does it look like for us to thrive in our Babylon? Now, as the book draws to a close, Daniel ends these last chapters by giving us a series of visions or apocalyptic pictures of the future. So, you know, when we think about Daniel, you know, chapters one through six are money, right? Chapter nine is money. I mean, that is like good stuff, great spiritual truths. We get to all these visions and apocalyptic fires of judgment, and we are just really, really tempted to skip it over. Um, I've been really tempted to skip it over, right? Okay, until, okay, until we remember that apocalyptic visions like these functioned in ancient literature like soundtracks due to movies in our time. And I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. When I think about my favorite movies, okay, a lot of those are Christmas movies. Yeah, I, I am right there. Okay, I, 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 love, I love the Christmas movies, whether it's the Holiday Inn or White Christmas. And when I think about those movies, what makes them so good? What is it? It's the music, right? It's the soundtrack. The soundtrack, I mean, I just have to huddle up on my couch every Christmas and boohoo my eyes out to It's a Wonderful Life. Okay, it happens. Okay, it's glorious. It's awesome because the music moves the heart. The music stirs the soul. The music stirs the imagination. And that's what's going on in Daniel. You see, these visions, folks, that Daniel gives us in these last chapters are not to be blown past, are not to be skipped over. In fact, they are going to give us the color to the rest of the book. You see, Daniel has been reminding us over and over and over in the study that God is sovereign, God is in control, God is all-powerful, God wins, the church wins, God's people win. God is in control over all of human history. He sets up kings, he takes down kingdoms. And intellectually, we know this. And intellectually, Daniel knows this. But emotionally, spiritually, experientially, sometimes we forget. Sometimes it's hard to believe. Sometimes when we look at the exile that characterizes our life, we're saying, God, we, we know what you've said, but God, what are you doing? See, these last three chapters are meant to connect our hearts to the theological knowledge that we've been getting in the first part of the book. And so when we come to these last three chapters, we have a concluding vision in chapter 11, which we'll talk about next week. But chapter 10, this week, is going to take us behind the spiritual curtain, so to speak. Daniel is going to reveal life as it truly is. Daniel is going to take us behind the scenes, to the throne room of God, so to speak, to show us reality, to show us truth. That what we see out here in our day-to-day lives isn't all there is. 
In fact, there's something incredibly spiritual, powerful going on behind the scenes. Now, those of you who know me will know this is simply one more confession of a Disneyophile, okay? But, but sometimes, if you're ever at the happiest place on earth, and that's just what we need to start calling it, okay? You, you look around and, you, and I wonder, how in the world does the magic happen, right? Who, who orchestrates all this? Who controls it? How, who, who choreographs this and that? And it's just all flowing so seamlessly. And so you'll be happy to know that Disney has a tour for you to find out exactly that. It's called the Keys to the Kingdom Tour. And Susan and I took that tour about 10 years ago, if you really want to find out how the magic happens. And this thing was, was really quite amazing. So they take you into the Utila corridors. Okay, those are the, the passages under Magic Kingdom. And they show you how they can get one cast member from one side of the park to another in literally seconds, right? You find out how they have security, how they monitor your every movement. They do. They monitor your every movement. In fact, they're monitoring it right now, okay, <laughs> waiting for you to come back. You find out how they choreograph their, their parades and how it all fits together. And you may say, well, Pastor Paul, doesn't that kind of ruin it for you? Now, I'll admit, it can be a bit disconcerting to discover that that Minnie Mouse is really a middle-aged man who smokes a cigarette on their break. Okay, all right, now that, that's, okay, that's a little disconcerting. Just kidding, okay. But no, in fact, it gives me an incredibly greater appreciation, a greater confidence that, like, these people know what they're doing, okay? Like, this is, this is pretty unbelievable that they can make the trains run on time like that. That's chapter 10. It's the trains run on time chapter. See, Daniel wants to pull the curtain back and show us reality, show us life as it truly is, to show the heart of the conflict and struggle we have in this life and to, and to look at it and not despair, but to, but to walk out of here today with confidence and hope, even if we don't quite get everything that God is doing right now. So we're going to read chapter 10. It's one of the shorter chapters, thankfully, in these visions. And if you don't have your Bible, you can follow it along on the screen behind me. Hear God's word. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up 
trembling. And he said to me, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. Now, here's where it gets interesting. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand What is to happen to your people in the latter days? For the vision is for days yet to come. Now we had spoken to me according to these words. I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, Oh my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you not know why I have come to you? But now I'll return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side except these, against these except Michael, your prince. Lord, these, um, this is a hard passage. It's a complicating passage. But yet, Lord, it's such a simple passage. And so we're asking that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear. Lord, you'd put a, a guard around my tongue. I would not say anything that's not true, that's not reflective of you and your word and truth and wisdom. So Lord, I can't, I can't do that. We can't do that. Only you by the power of your spirit can do that. And we ask for his help now. Amen. The third year of Cyrus makes it about the year 536 B.C., and it tells us in verses 3 and 4 that Daniel is, has embarked on what we would call a big boy fast, okay? Three weeks, okay? I have trouble fasting for three hours, okay? But three weeks, it says he's mourning, he's fasting, he's praying. He says he hasn't been anointed. What does that mean? means bro has not showered, okay? So he is like, got the, the, he's got the ashes on top of his head. He is, he's, he's disturbed. It says in verse 12 that he is set in his heart to understand. No, no, what was Daniel trying to, to do here? What, what, what was confusing for him? Well, you remember a decree had been made two years before that Israel could go home. Cyrus said, your exile is over and, and I'm releasing you. You're free Go on back to to Israel, which was 600 miles to the west. And we know that the first wave of exiles had already returned. But we know that the exile was not going as planned, at least from God's people's perspective. We know from Ezra and Nehemiah, who were contemporaries of Daniel, that, that they were experiencing incredible opposition to the rebuilding of the temple, to the rebuilding of the walls. Um. This was not a clean return from exile. And in fact, now this is really interesting, it seems that a great multitude of people in Israel didn't return to Jerusalem. 
Okay? These these captives that were in Babylon, in exile, Cyrus gave the decree, and many of them, if not most of them, said, we don't want to go back. Now, let's think about that for a second. This was the fulfillment of God's promises to his people. They want to stay in Egypt, or they want to stay in Babylon. And, and, and on one hand, we can understand why, okay? Their families weren't there. Their, their homes weren't there. They didn't even know this place, okay? It was, it was totally off their grid. But Daniel looks around and says, God, what is going on? What, what, does, what does all of this mean? This is not happening like I thought you said it was going to happen. And so he's fasting and he's praying and he's, and he's seeking God. And, 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 and listen, I don't know where you are today. I don't know what crisis, what exile, what disappointment has sort of enveloped you at this point in your life. But all of us intuitively understand where Daniel is because many of us are where Daniel is. We know what God has said, but we don't understand what God is doing. And this drives Daniel to be before the Lord. And there's two things I think that Daniel wants us, wants to be, wants us to be reminded of this morning. And, and here they are, two simple things. Number one, folks, we have to remember that life is war. That life is war. And number two, but God fights for his people. Life is war, but God fights for his people. So our two points are the war and the warrior. Okay, look at verse one. It says that this vision that Daniel receives involves a conflict, and that's kind of a military term. And there seems to be two levels of conflict that are happening in this passage. And the first is what Daniel sees. Okay? Think about the conflicts in our life, the tensions in your life. There's, there, there's what you see. Okay? And so what Daniel sees is that there is this great struggle going on in the ancient world. Babylon has come and conquered, and then Persia just wipes Babylon out. And, and, and here's Persia, and, and God's people are sort of caught in the crossfire of all of these kingdoms conquering each other. And then you have Greece over here to the west, and it's slowly gaining strength. And, and Daniel sees this, okay? That's happening on one level. But on another level, Daniel says there, there's something happening that we do not see. You see, there is a spiritual war in the heavens that parallels the earthly struggles and wars that are going on here on earth. Look at verse 13. This, this angel warrior or angel fighter. I mean, he, he, is, he is a warrior. He shows up, and this is what he says. He says, he's been fighting with the prince of Persia, which, which evidently is sort of a, a demonic counterpart that sort of reigns over Persia. And that this opposition and fighting was so intense that, that he was delayed 21 days from responding to Daniel's prayer. In other words, God's, God heard Daniel's prayer God sent out his messenger, and he's been delayed 21 days, and so he has to call in Michael. Now, if you read other parts of Scripture, we know that Michael, the archangel, is the sort of the captain of God's armies. He has to call in Michael to help. In fact, we know that he says that at the end of the chapter that once he's finished with Daniel, he's going to return to the fight with the prince of Persia. 
And that once he and Michael have dispatched the prince of Persia, they're going to take on the prince of Greece. So we have all these sort of demonic representatives of these earthly kingdoms duking it out behind the scenes. Have I lost you yet? Okay, let me, okay, stay with me. Let's be honest. To our 21st century ears, this stuff kind of sounds what? Like cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, right? Okay, I mean, this is, this is cartoonish or fiction or this is like Saturday Night Live and the church lady sort of stuff or the exorcism, whichever version you happen to watch, okay? Even as Christians, we're kind of embarrassed by this stuff. We're like, Pastor Paul's preaching on Daniel, but you might want to come when he's preaching Daniel 5, not Daniel 10, okay? That's where you'll discover we're all crazy, okay? So it's easy to sort of, to sort of cast that shadow over the text. However, we have to remember that spiritual warfare is a significant, and it is a consistent theme of Scripture. From you cannot read your Bible more than two chapters till you get to chapter 3 when Satan appears on the scene in the form of a serpent trying to deceive Adam and Eve in order to destroy the purposes of God, in order to destroy God's people. We see this in the wilderness with Jesus. Remember, Jesus came to die. And Satan, because he has dominion over the world, appears to Jesus while Jesus is fasting. Isn't that interesting? To tempt him and to say, Jesus, I offer all of this to you. Just bow your knee to me. Because he knew that if Jesus went to Jerusalem to die, that God's purposes would be fulfilled. Satan wants to destroy the people of God. We see it in Revelation. All the way to the bitter end, Satan is wreaking havoc on the people of God, the church. And not until Satan and his minions are cast into the lake of fire will there be peace. This is not a peripheral theme in Scripture. That's what I want you to see. It is not a peripheral theme. There is a real war going on right now between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the evil one. There are, in fact, spiritual realities that stand behind everything. People, and this is so hard for us to understand as materialists in the West, there are spiritual realities that that stand behind people, institutions. There are unseen evil powers exerting influence over kingdoms and governments in this world from Satan's perspective to do one thing, and that's to take you down. That's to take the church down. That's why the church has always had to fight for its survival. But God prevails. God builds his church. Because you can't read history without just noting the spiritual realities that are prevalent. You can't, you can't watch the news today and not know it. When ISIS blows through the Middle East and is burning villages left and right and slaughtering thousands of Christians, you know it's true. When you consider that 19, since 1973, 55 million little ones slaughtered, given up to abortion, you know that this is part and parcel of the schemes of the evil one. Now, you, know, you may say, Pastor Paul, that's just way, I can't even think that big. That's just so obtuse. And uh, Guys, on a personal level, let's make it really personal. Peter tells us in his, in his letter 
that Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking to conquer and devour you and me. Satan wants you to wreck your spiritual life. Men, Satan wants you to leave your marriages. Satan wants you who work to bring um, disrepute upon his name in the workplace. Satan wants you moms to abandon your kids and go find a new life somewhere. Satan wants me to fall in temptation and discredit his gospel. Satan wants to take down Four Oaks Community Church. You see, everything about our life, here's what Daniel's reminding us, everything about our life is spiritual. There are no neutral categories. We are either building the kingdom of God or we are building the kingdom of man. Every act of your life and my life is an act of worship. Everything done is done for something. Now, some have used this text to make it say certain things that it doesn't say. Because I think it says those things clearly. Now, some have used this text to, to, and others to, to, to kind of advocate for constructing what, what we would call a taxonomy or a classification of territorial demons and spirits that sort of inhabit every kind of sickness, every kind of struggle. And so you hear about the demon of depression, the demon of anger. Some of you wives feel like you're dealing with the demon of college football this season, right? Okay, there's the demon of Gainesville. There's the demon, whatever, okay. All right. Now, now, nowhere in Scripture does it tell us to search out fictional or non-fictional demons or spend time finding every demon hiding behind a rock to become obsessed and preoccupied. There's a lot of Christians who do that. A lot of Christians do that with end times theology. That's not the point of this text. The point of this text, folks, is that there are great spiritual issues at stake in this life. There's eternal realities at stake in this life. How we spend our money, how we shepherd our children, the kind of people we marry, what we work, how we work, what we do, the values we prioritize. These are spiritual issues. And so we have to do what Daniel does. And, and if, guys, if we truly understood that, okay, if we truly understood that, three weeks fasting and praying, that makes a little more sense now, right? That makes a little more sense. Daniel is seeking after God because he knows what's at play. As you know that prayer is a great barometer of how much you and I get this. Prayer is a great barometer of this. Prayer is an indicator of just how important and urgent we think the spiritual matters of life really are. Now, here, here's a great, great quote, and parents use it for your kids as a little nursery rhyme at night. Okay, I love this. So simple. Until you know that life is war, you'll never know what prayer is for. See, if, if life is, is neutral for you, or, or, or life is not viewed through a spiritual grid, then we will be prayerless, powerless people. We'll be materialist. We'll just be sort of meandering and, you know, lackadaisically through our days, through our lives, no sense of urgency. But what we get from Daniel here is be alert, four oaks. Be alert. Know that Satan is prowling around like a ruined line. Yes, 
Jesus is the divine warrior. We're going to talk about him in a minute, but, but, but be aware. Now, also know this from this text. Prayer is not just the barometer. It's also a conduit to God's power in our lives, okay? So we, we see Daniel praying, and what's amazing is that God is responding. Okay? God sends his messenger. Now, this is where our theology can be really challenged and get muddled if we're not careful. Because we've been learning throughout the book of Daniel that God is sovereign, is he not? God is powerful, is he not? God does what he wants, does he not? God's running the show. We know from other books of the Bible, like Job, that Satan, in fact, is on a leash. Satan is doing the bidding of God. So, so, so we know those things. And then we come to this text like this, and we ask, how, how does this work? I mean, Daniel's praying, but God's answer and messenger is being delayed. You know, what, what's up with that? We don't know for sure, and some of these things are mysteries to us. But I want you to think about this for a second. Could it be that God delays because he wants Daniel to continue to pray? See, God wants to do a work of grace in Daniel. So he has Daniel in the dirt with him. Daniel knows unless God shows up, unless God provides the answer, there is no hope, there is no confidence, there is no assurance of the future. Because I don't know where in your life God has delayed. Where God has delayed his 21 days proverbially for you. Every one of us probably, either right now or have or will, are, are waiting on God. And we want to know when God is going to show up with his messenger, with his help. It's at that very point that God wants to do his work of grace in your life. It's at that very point that God wants to do his work of grace in my life. He wants to say, Paul, cry out to me. Paul, only I can save. Paul, you're nothing apart from me. Paul, you can do nothing on your own. You cannot bear fruit. Paul, call out to me in prayer. Folks, God is the only one who can make order out of the chaos in our souls, in our lives. And so sometimes God's messenger is delayed for our sake so that we might seek him, that we might know him, and that when he answers, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is God and God alone. It doesn't have anything to do with me. Guys, in January, we're, we're going to be wrapping up with, with this series and the Advent series around Christmas and the holidays. But we're going to spend the month of January preaching through the Lord's Prayer in Matthew. We are going to spend the month as a church family crying out to God. We, we are going to cry out to God for ourselves, our souls, our neighbors, our country, our church, our families, our friends, this city, our children, our marriages, relationships, because we know that life is war. And when we really know that, we will know what prayer is for. And here's what's so cool in this passage. And here, here's point number two. When we cry out, God moves. He may not move when you think he should move or how he think 
you think he should move, but he moves. Okay, let's look at the warrior in this text. It says this messenger, an angel, is sent in response to Daniel's prayer. And look at the way Daniel describes this messenger, this angel, in verses 5 through 6. It says that he looks like beryl. That means emerald. He's shining. He uses the word lightning, flaming torches, bronze. I mean, I, mean, I think it's pretty clear, guys, that, that Daniel is, is describing an a angel in warrior garb. This is a specimen of a creature. You do not want to mess with this guy. He might as well be wearing a sign that says, come at me, bro. Right? You, don't want, you, don't, you don't want to mess with him. Okay? And what does Daniel do when this, when this angel appears? Have you ever been in a room where a dignitary comes into the room, like a governor or congressman or, or, or president even, and, 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 and regardless of whether you like him or her or agree with him or her, there's always this hush, is there not? There's always this respect, unless you're part of the, the cast of the Broadway show Hamilton, other than those guys, right, okay? Now multiply this by 100. There's just awe. God's, no, not God, just God's messenger shows up. And Daniel is absolutely undone. He, he is spiritually devastated. Now look at verses 8 and 9 and 15. Just a few of the adjectives that describe Daniel at this point in time. He's helpless. He's shaking. He wants to lie down and take a nap. Okay? Get me, you know, I want to go to sleep so I forget all this. He's breathless. His strength has left him. He has the appearance of fear. He's trembling. He's falling on his, ble- on his face. He's mute. He can't speak. He has, no, he has no strength. He is literally overwhelmed by this messenger from God. Now, his companions don't see it, okay? But they know something's bad's happened or, or, or crazy because they, they have scattered. Now, who does this remind us of? Paul on the road to Damascus, right? Jesus appears to Paul, and everyone is terrified, and, and, what, and what happens when Jesus confronts Paul? Paul is laid low. Paul is, is blinded. He cannot see. See, I think what we're, what we're after here is that there's nothing casual about this encounter. And for folks, there's nothing casual when God's people encounter their God. You know, I, I, I think that... that Theological pendulums swing. And there was a time and a place where God so, seemed so distant and so abstract that people said, we, we've, got to, we've got to recapture this, this idea that God is with us. And so let's take down everything that beholds glory or transcendence or, or holiness. We have to remember, for Oaks, that God is not our bro. He's not our fishing buddy. Okay. He's, he's not someone who's there for us like a butler in a pinch, in a crisis. We want to ring the bell. God will come running. But otherwise, he's largely upstairs attending to other servant duties until we need him. No, no, no. When Daniel asks for help and God's messenger shows up, and understand, this is not even God. 
When God's messenger shows up, his presence through this messenger, Daniel is finished. Think about John in Revelation. Remember, John the Apostle was Jesus' closest disciple. He was the disciple who was the beloved, the one that Jesus loved during his ministry. But yet, when the risen Christ appears to Jesus, so when the risen Christ appears to, to John in Revelation 1, and John beholds him, what does it say? John says, I fell down to the ground as what? As if I was dead. In other words, I wanted to melt into the concrete. Okay, that's how terrifying this picture was. Guys, I said this in the first service, but if Jesus showed up here today, they would have to shut this place down. I don't know who they is, okay, but they would have to shut it down. I mean, we, we, we would not leave or remain unchanged. We would be hugging the ground. Now, where am I going with all this? Guys, pray. I, this is what I pray for us. I pray that as a church family, that we would be able, through the grace of God, to recapture what theologians call God's transcendence. That God is above, that God is holy, that God is powerful. I would pray that God would give us a renewed sense of his awe. That means A-W-E. That you would see, that I would see my need, my lowliness, my dependence upon him. Guys, how different would life look if we lived it in light of the transcendence of God? That God is holy, he is above, he is mighty, he is awesome. How would that change our marriages? How would that change the way we spend our money? How would that change the way we treat one another? How would that change our priorities? Daniel is confronted with God's transcendence. That's what this is about. And so what happens next? Now, I think what happens next is maybe the most amazing, understated thing that we find in this text. What happens when the transcendent God through his messenger appears to Daniel and Daniel's hugging the ground, worthy to be wiped out? God's holy, he is not. Us worthy to be wiped out. Look at verses 10, 16, and 18. I want you, I want to, I want you to see what they all have in common. It says, the messenger touched Daniel. Touched him. The touch of affection, the touch of help. He comforts him. He lifts him up. He, in, he encourages him. He, he strengthens him. It says in verse, verse 18, again, one having the appearance of man, touch me and strengthen me. Now listen to these words of comfort that the messenger speaks. Remember, transcendent God, listen to this. And he said, oh man, greatly loved Fear not. Fear not. Get on your feet, Daniel. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. We've been talking about the gospel in the book of Daniel, and there it is, four oaks. God is transcendent. Oh, yes, he is. But if that was all he was, we are done. It is over for us. But see, God is also imminent. 
In a couple of weeks, we're going to be singing Emmanuel. What does that mean? God with us. That is the most amazing news any one of us could ever hear. God transcendent is now God Emmanuel. And because God is with us, and here's what he's telling Daniel, and here's what he's telling you, whatever crisis you find yourself in, whatever exile, whatever struggle, God fights for you. God fights for his people. God is on your side. Now, in a postmodern context, that will get somebody hurt, right? <laughs> to claim that God is on my side or, or that God is fighting for me. Now, before we quickly try to say all the things that doesn't mean, I want you to consider this for a second. The term holy war is a prominent theme in the Bible. In the Old Testament, do you realize that warfare was actually an act of worship? That the people had to seek God for before going to war. That, that people had to be ceremonially clean. They had to bring out the Ark of the Covenant and carry it before them as a sign of the presence of God. And that God used his people, the nation of Israel, to demonstrate his holiness and his justice as they fought and wiped out pagan nations. That is Old Testament. We say, well, Pastor Paul, that's just Old Testament, and we're in the New. Yes, we're in the New Testament. And we are not a Christian nation. We're a Christian people. That's not called to violence. That's not called to enact justice with the sword. What do you think? This is what Paul means when he says in Ephesians 6, our battle is what? Not against flesh and blood. Okay? That stuff is up to God. We carry the gospel of peace and mercy and grace to people. But yet, today, God is still your divine warrior. God fights for his people. Two ways I want to, I want to mention to you, then we're done. And this is the first one we've seen over and over again in the book of Daniel. That God is coming back at the end of time. And he is going to wipe out his enemies and ours. The warrior God is coming back. Now, it's not in this life or not, or not in this. Maybe it might not be in this life. It might be. We pray, Maranatha, Lord, come, come quickly. But when he comes, he wipes away every tear. He puts everything right. He puts down the enemies of God. Not, not temporarily, but forever. You know, what's amazing about heaven? You know when, you're, when you have one of those moments in, in life where it comes as close to ecstasy as you, can, as you can experience, and you're thinking, man, I just wish this moment would never end. I just wish I could kind of freeze time for a second because here I'm safe, here I'm happy, here I am fulfilled. That's just a little glimpse of eternity where Jesus says, it's all over. It never has to end. Here's a second way that I think God fights for us. See, God fights for you right now, Christian, by wiping away your sin and securing the victory of your soul over the evil one. And God did not win that battle by killing something out there. God won that battle by killing his own son. You see, the warrior God 
did not spare his son, but gave himself up for us all as a sacrifice of atonement. The warrior God took his holiness and directed it against his own son. That's why God fights for you. Because Jesus' blood, Jesus' righteousness is now counted as yours by faith and faith alone. Colossians 2 is a great passage. Listen to this. And you who were dead in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made a lie together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. Now, how did he do that? Then he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That's the gospel. God did not come into the world to set things right by the world by, by erasing or eradicating the world. He killed his own son, nailed him to the cross, and in the process triumphed over his enemies and secured your salvation and mine. And now he fights for us. I ask our leaders to come forward, prepare to serve worst table. And here's what I want us to do this morning. As you're coming to the table, I want you to be reminded this life is war. But I also want you to be reminded that, that God fights for us. And as you think about God fighting for you, think about God's transcendence, that he's over, that he's above, that he's holy. And that God would, would, would lead you to live in light of that with a deeper awe. But that we get to come to the table. Do you see? Okay. We're seated at his table. We are no longer enemies. We are friends of God because of the cross. God is with us. Us. He's with us. Let's celebrate that today. So go before the Lord. Ask and prepare your hearts as we come to the table. Mm-hmm.